Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to USTA Florida's Here to Serve podcast. I'm Laura Bowen, Executive Director for USTA Florida, and I'm especially excited today to have an expert guest who's going to dig in a little bit on our mental skills and particularly provide maybe some helpful insights and advice to how we as parents and coaches can do a better job of strengthening our players' mental games. So joining me today is Dr. Larry Lauer. Larry is the mental skills specialist for USTA. Thank you so much, Larry, for taking time to meet with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Laura, for having me on. I'm excited to, to talk with you and to your audience, and let's see what we can get into. I'm, I'm very yes. interested. So. I have a lot of questions for you. you. You have a lot of great questions that got me thinking, so this should be good. Well, for those of you tuning in, I hope you have some time because we're, we're probably going to go on for a little while here, but hopefully all good insights. So want to start the way we start with all of our new guests on our podcast. Larry, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for the USTA? Sure. So I work as our mental skills specialist in, in player and coach development, which works with uh, you know, kind of the high performance end and, and preparing players for professional tennis. Um, we work with juniors, work with pros, but working backwards, uh, I have a PhD in exercise and sports science, specializing in sports psychology. Uh, so essentially a mental performance coach. Um, I work to mentally prepare our players for competition as well as support our coaches. Uh, in my role now, I, I lead a team of three, including myself. And we, we support our athletes at our Orlando campus, as well as out in Carson, California. Um, and, and really, it's, again, our job to make sure that our players are happy, they're healthy, they're high performing. Um, you know, they're going about things and thriving and being resilient. And, and when they're not, that they also have the support they need to, to get back on track. So I've uh, been doing this job with the USTA for eight years now, uh, but been in sports psychology for over 20 years. Uh, started out at, at the University of North Carolina Greensboro with Dr. Dan Gould, who you know, a lot of people know, uh, aware of. He's done work in tennis and with parents and new sport and coaching. So started out with Dan at UNC Greensboro, moved to uh, Michigan State University at the Institute for the Study of Youth Sports, uh, where I did a lot of um, coach development, coach education work with the high school association, as well as uh, doing research and outreach. Uh, a lot of my job there was to take our research and, and make it consumable for a lay audience. So writing for lay audiences, um, developing curriculum, stuff like that. Uh, at the same time, I was running my own consulting business and uh, you know, I was working for USA Hockey's national team development program. So I had the opportunity to work with the best hockey players in the country in Ann Arbor as well as uh, to be an assistant, volunteer assistant coach and mental coach for the men's tennis team at Michigan State University with Gene Orlando, uh, which was just a, a great experience. Um, had opportunities to work uh, with police athletic league in, league in Detroit. Uh, you know, spent a lot of time in tennis, doing camps for the USTA. We, we wrote a book for the USTA, the USTA Mental Skills and Drills Handbook, which came out of a sports science grant. So. You know, it's kind of been a long history with USTA, doing research, uh, working in camps, writing the book. Um, you know, we did a, a large-scale parent research project back in the early 2000s, 
and where we, we uh, did focus groups with coaches. We interviewed, um, we did a large scale survey of coaches, but then we interviewed uh, nine professional players, one of their parents, and then one of their developmental coaches. And that research also exists on, I believe on our website. So uh, folks can access that, but yeah, so it's been a long history with tennis. Uh, really love it and, and enjoy helping players, uh, you know, maximize their their skills and achieve their goals. I was just writing down all of those wonderful resources so that we can link to them in this podcast because we are trying to figure out what's out there and what would be helpful. I do want to go back to, you know, you mentioned you had worked with hockey. Um, so you've worked on a team side and individual side. And you and I actually have something else in common, which you didn't mention, is that I know uh, that you grew up wanting to play professional baseball. And I grew up wanting to play softball. And of course, I couldn't play that professionally, but I just wanted to play that forever. That was my favorite sport. Um, and given your experience as a baseball coach and a player, and then what you just said about working with hockey, can you tell us a little bit about how mental skill development might differ in a team sport compared to an individual sport like tennis? Yeah, absolutely. I've had a, a long history of working with other sports. So I've had the opportunity to work with a number of teams over the years, hockey, baseball, football, uh, many team sports, basketball. One of the, one of the things that we see while many of the things are similar that we would teach or are that are factors in performance is that you have to function together in a team, right? Or you have to work together towards a common goal. And that requires a lot of communication. It requires a, a great deal of role identification and role uh, support and, and willingness to accept your role, role acceptance. So there, there are certain team things that have to incur, you know, leadership, uh, communication between teammates, the relationship between players and coaches. It gets a, it's a big a complex, as you can imagine, with all these different personalities and uh, different roles that people have to play. So you have to kind of piece together the puzzle in that sense when you're working in a team and you work amongst the staff. Now, in the individual sport, a lot of your work ends up being a lot more direct. You know, you're, you're much more personally involved with one player. Uh, it's there's less communication during the performance, to be honest, like in tennis, you can't really do a whole lot during the match. You sit and you watch, you take notes. Whereas when you're in a team sport, you're probably much more involved. Now, the one place where I had a different experience was in college tennis. Like I said, I helped with Michigan State men's tennis, and that was a wonderful experience to actually be able to coach on court. But that's pretty rare. We're separated from the experiences as it's happening for a tennis player. So that's a big difference. So that's why, um, you know, I know you have a later question, but what, that's why it's so important that our players are independent and responsible because they have to make all their own decisions during the matches and we have to train them for that. I think you see, you know, that in the individual sports, especially tennis, that are the players, they like being the sole focus, but it also can be a burden. They like the fact that they don't have to rely on anyone else to perform, that it's mm -hmm. all on them. But mm -hmm. they feel the weight of that as well, mm -hmm. that responsibility, that it's all on me. And, and that can certainly create a lot of enjoyment and knowing that you control what's happening to a large extent, but also uh, can create a lot of anxiety as well as you are solely responsible for things, at least in your own mind. 
um, when they start to go south. Um, so that's where things can get pretty personal for the individual. Uh, the player-coach relationship, I think, is different too, Laura. I think in, in tennis, tennis coaches become probably even more involved in the lives of their players right. in, in general because it's a one-on-one situation in many cases. Uh, I think tennis coaches by the nature of the relationship, get to know their players uh, in a deeper way, their personal lives, their schooling. So they're more involved, I think, in the whole life of the player in many cases, where you think about if you're a baseball coach or a hockey coach, you may have 12, 15, 20 players. You can't get that involved with one individual, and you're going to have assistant coaches who are going to be the ones who are more likely to, to know these players more in depth and more personal. And so, so different, certainly in terms of relationship, I think tennis players, especially as they become better and they become older, they look at that relationship as more collaborative where this is my coach. We're working together and it's not such a huge power difference. If you think about like football coaches, football coaches wield a lot of power. Basketball coaches wield a lot of power uh, over their teams because they're trying to manage I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but they're trying to manage a lot of people, right? right. And, and lead a, a bunch, a group of people in a certain direction. So you, you do see this player-coach relationship, I think, being a little bit more intimate uh, in a professional way in tennis. I think from a mental skill standpoint, and I'll stop after this, from a mental skill standpoint, a lot of your work in team sports comes down to working together. In communication and how do you, how you work together on the bench or on the field or on the ice. In tennis, you just lock into that one person unless you're working with a doubles team. You, work, you lock into that one person. You, you can customize and individualize everything that you're doing to their preferences, their needs, their issues. Uh, so in tennis, you have the opportunity really to really customize and craft this very specific plan and strategy that's best for the for the player, which means you need to really take into account that player's needs. Uh, you need to account for those things anyway on a team, but certainly in tennis, uh, right. it, it becomes very individualistic in terms of the way you're working with people. Yeah, and I, I do have a follow-up question for you because I, I know in my own experience being part of a team growing up, you know, my parents didn't come to my athletic competitions. You know, I had a whole team and you did have some parents who came out, but I felt like I got my reassurance and support from my team. So if I had a bad day or a bad game, you know, I had teammates that were saying it's okay and I support you. And so I really didn't need to get that from my parents so much. I got that reassurance and that you know, it, it really helped me mentally to, to be around people who would lift me up. And I also felt like the team kind of self-corrected behavior. So if someone was being not a team player or negative, the team itself was sort of this force to kind of say either, you know, we will fix this behavior or we'll re- reject this person. And so my question, my follow-up question for you is, you know, when an individual sport like tennis, where you don't have that team voice, to kind of say, this is the character, this is what we're, we are trying to accomplish, and this is the culture we want. How powerful then is the voice of the coach or the parent 
in those particular circumstances uh, where maybe things aren't going going well and there needs to be some reassurance? Does that become more important to the player? Well, I think, again, it's, it's far more personal in many cases with the tennis player. And you, you don't have that, that buffer or, you know, that kind of diffusion of responsibility that you get on teams because maybe I made some mistakes, but the whole team struggled to play today or other people made mistakes and lost. In tennis, there's no diffusion of that responsibility. All you can say is like, hey, the other person played, my opponent played better than me. Maybe I didn't get the calls or whatever, but you really own the performance and you own the outcome. And that's okay. But I think because it's so personal, because it's very easy for young people to link that to their their uh, self-worth, their self-esteem, how they feel about themselves. It's important for coaches and parents to be the ones that are disconnecting that connection. But you know what? That's one moment. Like it's just one match. That doesn't mean that, you know, next week is going to be the same way. Uh, you know, so I think our voices as coaches and, and the voices of parents as well are extremely loud in the ears, in the minds of the players. Uh, because you think about it, there's not that many people who are around them. I mean, they get other people chiming in, especially in junior tennis, but parents and coaches wield a lot of, a lot of, voice with the players. So I think you need to be very aware of that. You need to be understanding of the the level of influence that you have. You have a lot of influence. These kids look up to the coaches. The parents still are, you know, even if they're teenagers and they're acting like they don't want you around, they still need you and they still want you there. They just don't want to show it in many cases. So they're still relying on you, but they don't want to admit it. Uh, so, you know, you, you play this very influential role. And so we think, uh, when I say we, I think in the field of sports psychology and in psychology, we believe that adults kind of create the lens in which children see the world. And the way that you talk ends up being a reflection of the way that people talk to you. Not fully, because everybody has their own personality, but our belief is that coaches and parents in many ways, are training the inner voice of the player, the way they see things, the way they look at winning and losing, how they look at their games. So you take a very specific example. If I struggle on my serve and, and the parent's constantly talking about how the serve isn't good enough and how you need to work on it, guess what's going to be in your head as you're playing? Serve's not good enough. I haven't done enough work. It's not going to hold up, right? So that voice is very strong. But imagine we take it in a positive way. The parents, they're encouraging and reinforcing. The coach is reinforcing, reminding them of their strengths, reminding them of their, their skill sets and the work that they put in. That's very powerful. So as parents and coaches, we have the opportunity to train that, that mental strength that we want to see in young players, that resilience, that confidence, that toughness. Um, that uh, engagement um, that we're looking for, but oftentimes we don't take responsibility with the words we use. That is a really important point. And we're going to talk a little bit about failure later in the podcast. And I, 
I want to come, I'll come back to that then about how do we talk about failure? And I think there's a lot of things, a lot of different ways people talk about failure that could affect how a player internalizes that failure. Um, but before we get there, I did want to go uh, back to, you did a, a podcast previously with, I think it was Tennis One. This was right before the pandemic. And one of the things that struck me was you talked about your own experience not being able to play college, uh, I think baseball, right? College baseball. Correct, yes. How that impacted you. And one of the questions that that triggered in my mind is, I know a lot of our tennis parents are very hyper-focused on having their child play college tennis or in some cases, becoming the next tennis pro, right? They have very high lofty goals for a player. I wanted to ask you from from your perspective, is it bad for parents and coaches to have high level goals like that for children uh, of playing either at college or the pro level? And if if it's if it's a good thing to have, how can they set those goals, but also not put that undue pressure where this child feels like every loss I have is going to affect my ability to get this rating or this ranking and my success. And now I've got all of this on my shoulders. So how should parents be navigating those expectations? Well, now it's a tricky navigation, isn't it? In, in one that you're going to get wrong sometimes, unfortunately, but it's just the way it is. Um, I think it's important for young people to have big goals. But I think it's also important that it's their goals. And that's for me where it begins, Laura, is that these are self-stated goals that they have. Now, parents listening might be saying, you know, Larry, my kid's seven. Like, what do they know? And I I get it. So there's no need at that point. if If they don't have that dream of playing pro tennis in their mind, there's no need to really even go there. And I think most reasonable people would agree with that. I think where things get a little bit funky is as kids get a little bit older, 12, 13, 14, they're starting to show some talent, some skill, they're winning some tournaments or matches, and and things start to elevate quickly uh, in terms of expectations, how good someone should become to continue to win uh, to the level of involvement in tennis, how much they're training and how many tournaments they're playing and and then what else you're giving up. All these things factor into um, how a child looks at their sport. And, and so to me, it always starts with, especially as they get older, it's got to be their tennis. It's got to be their reason. If they, if they say, I want this because I want to be a pro tennis player, because I want to play Division One or whatever, I want to be a collegiate tennis player, then great. And then, then it's our job as parents to help them understand what it's going to take, right? What, and, and some parents may have a little bit of knowledge and some may have a lot of knowledge. But it's our job to kind of grease the skids then if this is something they want. And, and we agree that this is you know, something that we're willing to provide the opportunity for. We do always, as a parent, have that right to say no. Uh, but if we're going to provide that opportunity, then let's make sure it is their choice and it is their decision. Now, sometimes we get tricked, right? Because, uh, you know, if you were in the Lauer household, um, sports are on TV all the time. And, you know, I'm constantly talking about tennis and hockey and different sports, baseball. And it'd be very easy, and you know, for one of the kids to say, I want to be a, a pro 
tennis player, baseball player, hockey player, which that's what my son is saying right now. He wants to be a, a pro hockey player. It's got to be his choice, not because I enjoy it or because I coach it or because I've had experience with pros. So you have to have conversations about these things, uh, even being very clear, like, hey, this is not about me. This is what you want. If you want this, great. If you don't, that's fine, too. Uh, my job is just to help you to, to do the things that you're looking to do with your life. And, and so I think it's important that parents have those conversations. And, and it's okay to have those big goals. But really, the journey is all about the daily process of just getting better. Yeah. And enjoying the moment. So even if I do want to be a, a professional tennis player... I still have to be focused in the present and just working to make myself better. I can't be focused on five years down the road or a year down the road. But what you do need to do is while you're staying present and you're working to get better, you need to have a long-term development perspective. Like this is going to be a journey. It's going to be a process. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be times where it doesn't look good in terms of the goal and achieving the goal. And there's going to be times where you leap and times where you crawl. And being able to just to stay the process and understand that um, at the end of the day, the real, and I didn't understand this when I was younger, the real value in this whole thing is what you gain from the experience, not the carrot at the end of the stick, right? Now, it'd be, it'd be amazing to become a professional tennis player, but I think what you, relationships you develop, the skills you develop, the experiences you have, those are the things that stick with you. Uh, I remember Brett Favre, who played quarterback for the Packers. They, he, for years, he tried to win the Vince Lombardi Trophy. And they asked him after he lifted the trophy, you know, how did it feel? And he, he said it was kind of a letdown mm. because, you know, it was, okay, I, I, I won it. But the real, he said the real enjoyment was the times in the locker room with his teammates, the big games where they were together on the sideline or in the huddle. Um, and that's what people remember. So... Yes, we want to reach these outcome goals, of course, and, and that's great. Uh, but it's really what children can gain through playing tennis. All these other things, it's gonna, they're going to remember for the rest of their lives, and hopefully it's going to give them a lot of skills and, and relationships that are going to help them throughout life. You know, <laughs> when we talk about college being a goal, I found something really interesting when I was speaking to uh, U.S. associate head coach Tanner Stump a few episodes ago. And, you know, we were talking about the importance of a lot of things when it comes to recruiting athletes. And he said something that was fascinating. He said that they look for athletes who are independent and not heavily relying on others to guide them. And I found this was really you know, a fascinating insight um, that was one of those intangibles. And I, you talked a little bit earlier about this. So I wanted to kind of circle back and ask you how parents, particularly, we talk about, you know, we've all heard the term, the um, uh, helicopter parent, and then it became the snowplow parent. <laughs> how can parents create and foster that independence in their young players um, so that they're able to problem solve. And I would assume that this is even more important in a sport like tennis. Like you said, it's kind of on them to make those decisions. So how do how can parents do a better job of fostering that independence? Well, I think it starts with the little things early on, you know, asking the child to 
carry their own bag to filling their own water. So it's a little stuff, you know, grip their racket. And then as you go through the journey, they start taking on more and more as they get more experienced and a little older, right? So then it gets into things like uh, maybe they're deciding on certain drills in practice, or maybe they're, they're the ones calling practice partners. Uh, they're having some say in the tournament schedule at some point. Um, that they're, you know, they're the ones talking about what the plan is for the match and what they need to do in their preparation routines and, and post-match routines. So it's a slow guiding process. At first, you have to create structure and educate because children need that, obviously. Um, and then within that, you let them explore and play and learn things. But then as it moves on, you really do need to slowly and, and progressively hand over responsibility because, again, in tennis, it's so obvious, they have to be independent. Of, they have to be out there in the court making their own decisions and make thousands of decisions in a match. And it's okay to make some mistakes, by the way. Because the last, any, any person I've met that's played tennis or has had to make thousands of decisions, eventually they make a mistake on the decision. Eventually, I try to hit a winner from behind the baseline down the line. It's just human nature, right? So that's okay. And let's not be afraid for kids to make little mistakes. They actually are going to help them develop and understand how to make better decisions. But I think that's the one thing, Laura, that holds back a lot of parents in this process is that they don't want their kids to make mistakes. They don't want them to lose or fail. And so then they try to control too much. If they, they get over involved, they try to do too many things. And, you know, it gets down as simple as, hey, you, you're responsible for your tennis bag and they don't have their shoes. Then guess what? You don't play. Don't like, get to play. Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's tough lessons like that. And I know people have different opinions on these things, but I think we need to, to hand things over to the kids progressively. And then I think, you know, it gets to a point like when they're, especially when they're teenagers, that they need to be siding on the goals, on, on the tournaments with you, the equipment they're using. Now, parents, ask them to your child, hey, I want you to go research this and I want you to come back with your argument or your rationale for why. Why this tournament schedule? Why this coach? Why this practice plan? There's, that's, that's a great way for them to learn uh, and, and do it in a way where it's supportive and positive. So, you know, as parents, then we need to back out at some point. We need to know when the time is right to back out and just let the coach do the coaching. If you're fortunate enough to have a coach, because not all kids have a coach, but if you're fortunate enough to have a coach and they can put that amount of time into your young tennis player, let them do that. You know, you sit back, encourage them, do more of the parent role uh, because it's great for that child to have that other person. Again, that makes them more independent. Now they got to deal with another personality, another human being and figure out how to work with them. Tremendous experience, you know, for young people. So that, that fostering of independence, um, that's something we as coaches also have to pay attention to in terms of we interact with the players and what we ask them to do and what we ask of them, you know, what do you want me to do? Uh, so very important. And then when you get to the level that I'm fortunate to work at, you see it come out in little things, right? Like um, the players out there and 
they're in a match and they start to struggle and they're looking over to the sideline a lot. It's like, well, there's nothing I can do. I don't have a racket in my hand. This isn't, this isn't studio wrestling. So you can't tap me in. I'd love to be tapped in, but there's not, it's not going to be allowed. So you're going to have to figure this out, you know, but this is why we practice. So you can figure these things out. So, uh, so, but you see that and, and it really is frustrating sometimes for coaches when they, they have a high performance player who is so dependent on their parents or their coaches, because that's a player that is not going to be able to, to see their quote unquote potential because at some point you need to go out and become your own person and become the athlete that you want to be. And if you're constantly looking to someone else to do things for you, to have the answer, uh, that's going to definitely lower the ceiling on, on what you're capable of doing. You know, I want to skip ahead to uh, stay on this topic. It's, this really gets to a, a, another question that I had, and it's just talking about failure, which, you know, people hate to talk about failure. We, we were just having this discussion here of like, you know, it's really, it's just so hard. We don't normalize the idea of like, well, that didn't work. And I totally screwed that up. And, you know, it's, it's this fear of fear, fear of failure and a lot of what you just said, I really, really resonates with me as a manager, because one of the hardest things for me to do is, you know, I might be in a meeting or I'm watching somebody work on a project and I see that they're not going to succeed. I see that what they're doing isn't working. And I instinctively want to jump in and save them. You know, I want to say, oh gosh, you know, and sometimes like, just like you articulated, they'll start looking at you, like, help me here. And it's very difficult to kind of sit in that space and allow those failures to happen as learning experiences. And it seems to me that parents seem to have those similar feelings, right? Of like, I see my child is struggling. I see that they're not doing well and I don't want them to fail or get a bad reputation or look like a loser or feel bad. So I'm going to jump in. And that jump in comes in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's, I'm going to jump in and criticize the opponent. Like, well, clearly Johnny couldn't win because the opponent was way bigger and stronger and had an unfair advantage. Or sometimes they jump in and they get mad at their own child to be like, you know, why are you losing? Like you could do better than this. And I'm embarrassed. You know, there's a lot of things that come out in that moment from the, and I feel them as a manager too, you know, it's human nature. So I wanted to ask you, you know, why is it important for athletes to experience that failure and loss? And how do we encourage it as like, this is a good thing that you've experienced this? Yeah, yeah. it's an important topic and, and something that we base a lot of our philosophy, our mental performance philosophy on is that tennis induces a lot of failure. I'm thinking every match, there's many, many dozens of unforced errors. And in fact, Novak Djokovic won a match where he had over 100 unforced errors in a five-set match. So a lot of what we talk about is there is no perfect and tennis is messy. And you've got to work through that chaos and that messiness. And at a young age, we're really imprinting at a young age for tennis players and just for in their lives on how to deal with mistakes, how to deal with failure, because a lot of what you have to do as a young tennis player 
is to go through that learning experience of making mistakes and stay motivated, stay focused, stay excited about what you're doing. And it, it can be challenging. So to me, that's a lot of where the resilience we're looking for in an older age starts. Can you go out, put yourself on the line, make mistakes, and just keep trying, keep learning? And that, that's going to always be important at every age, but it starts at that young age. Resilience is what we're trying to achieve, not perfection. We strive for protect, perfection, but we never reach it. We're trying to be resilient. Resilient has resilience or having resilience has three pillars. One is support. If you're going to be resilient, you're not going to do it alone. You need support. We've talked about some of the support parents and coaches provide. You got to be skilled uh, to be resilient, create coping skills, how you communicate, the way you set goals, visualize, talk to yourself, all these things, uh, staying focused, breathing exercises, all these things factor in your ability to be resilient and adapt to the things that are happening to you so you can bounce back. But also the one that people don't think about is enough. You have to have adversity. You can't be resilient without adversity. And tennis provides a lot of adversity. And we don't want that to be, you know, a bad word or something we're trying to avoid. It's like, hey, let's let's really approach these things because it's failure is part of the journey, losing is part of the journey, and it's necessary for you to get to where you want to be. In fact, we all we all say this, so we all need to remember it is that we often learn a lot more from our losses than we do our wins, right? right. Everything feels a lot better when you win and you gloss over maybe some of those lessons that are in that match or right. in that practice. So, so, you know, failure is a necessary part of the journey. I heard, uh, heard numerous tennis players, I believe Nadal has said this, talked about failure or losing as information to get better. And I, I, lo- I love that because it takes the edge off of, of this. And so instead of losing being something where I'm a failure and I can't do this. And as soon as you start thinking about, no, it's information to get better. You've changed it from this sort of innate mindset that I have to demonstrate my expertise, my excellence, or it's a failure to, it's a growth mindset of, this is a chance for me to work on things and get better. And oftentimes the listeners might be surprised, Laura, but when I working with the pros, we often talk about this. It's like, look, you're going there to work on the things that you've been training. You want to demonstrate them as best as you can. You're not going to be perfect. Put them out there because then you can find out where you're at. If you don't, if you play with the sphere of failure, you are passive. You don't really approach playing your game. Where does that leave you? You have no idea where you're at other than you didn't allow yourself to play. But this fear of failure can be bred in at such a young age. It's imprinted early on in the way that we react to kids when they, when they struggle. So when they're missing forehands and we're over there holding our head and like, what is the coach doing? Why can't they right. figure this out? You're already starting to build in that fear of failure because kids are sharp and they're paying attention. And they see, okay, A, I miss a forehand. B, my parent reacts. Right. So what C is, don't miss a forehand or you're going to make your parent unhappy, right? (laughs) They they make those connections so fast and it becomes 
very, very strong connections, emotional connections, where they don't want to let their parents down. And they think that they shouldn't miss. They have these irrational beliefs that I shouldn't miss. They, who has ever played that didn't miss? Like, if we think Roger Federer is the best ball striker of all time, pretty sure he's missed tens of thousands of balls in his life. So we have to deal with some of these irrational thoughts. And a lot of them are born in a young age. And what we want to do is we want to encourage young people to take chances and to go for it because that's where cool stuff can happen, right? Yeah, you may lose, you may miss, but you also might make it. You might win. Approach winning, approach achievement. Go for it. Take on those challenges because guess what? You know, if, if the child says, look, I want to, I want to, you know, play this tournament. It's like, well, you probably aren't going to win. All right. That's okay. That's a good chance to see what the level is, right? That's all right. You can learn from that loss. That's just one example. They want to learn how to hit a kick serve. Um, they're going to have to miss a lot of serves, you know, to learn how to kick serve. So, we want them to take on those hard challenges because that is the foundation of their resilience. Because what they gain the confidence from, you know what? Six months ago, I couldn't hit a kick serve. Now in this match, I'm relying on it on my second serve. You know, uh, six months ago, I played this tournament and I got waxed. Now I'm playing these level of players, this level of players, and I'm hanging in there and I'm staying in these matches. These things give people these experiences give them so much confidence and the belief in this idea that work can lead to results. It may take time, it takes a lot of energy, but that's truly where it's at. The other thing, you know, the big stuff, Laura, try not to be reactive when players are struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, one of, one of the nicest things someone has said to me uh, recently, um, the coach said to me, you know, Larry, you look so relaxed when you're watching matches. Uh, the players just have to feel that. I'm like, thank you. That, that, that means a lot to me because I should be the last one reacting to what's happening in the match. If I'm reacting, that's not good. I should be the last one off the ship if it's sinking. So we have to take that mentality as parents and coaches though, because our kids need it. They know they're missing. They know it's hard. Okay. You're going to be okay. I'm going to show that in my body language. I'm going to show that in my non-reaction, in my calmness, in my focus, in my head nod. We got to model resilience too. Yeah. As parents and coaches, we can talk about our own failures. I, you know, I feel like I've failed a lot in my life. I've become pretty good at failing probably. And <laughs> I, I can learn a lot. I don't like to fail. I, I tell, I'll listen to that right now. Like, I don't like to lose. Right. Like if we brought my wife on this podcast right now, she'd be like, oh, yeah, he hates losing. Maybe sometimes it's too competitive. But you have to put yourself out there. And when you do that, uh, you're going to make mistakes. And it's okay to talk about those with your kids. And it's also important to model the resilience that you're looking for in your kids. That when you fail, that you get back up, you make plans to make things better. You problem solve. You find a new way. You recommit. Uh, you talk to your kids about these things. And then when they fail, um, you remember these things and you, you encourage them as well. Uh, I think a lot of times, you know, you mentioned this, Laura, we like to fix things quickly. We do. Maybe because we're afraid of what it's going to do to our child, their self-esteem, self-confidence, or because, you know, life is in such a hurry and we're trying to rush to the finish line. 
I think we need to slow down. When kids are struggling, slow it down. Give them space to figure out what's going on. And then if they're not figuring it out, let their coach help them, right? See if the coach can figure it out. But certainly you got to role play in this as a parent. Listen to the child about what's going on, their experiences in practice. Ask them questions at the right times. Not immediately after the match. Like, hey, why did you, you know, only serve 35% of your first serves? That's a tough question to have to answer after you just lost. But maybe later on at dinner or the next morning, like, hey, you know, tell me what you thought about your serve. More open-ended question that's not so like pointed and right at you. Like, I know you screwed up, so what's wrong with it? <laughs> so there's ways to do this, um, you know, as parents. But I think if we want them to become independent, we want them to become resilient, then we need to ask more questions. We need to listen to them. We need to listen to the answers they're coming up with and encourage them. Then, well, okay, like if you want to get better at coming to the net, how can you work on that? Like what things can you do in practice? Because now we're reinforcing the whole idea that growth mindset of work will lead to results eventually. You will get better because you put in the work. Right. And that's the and only thing we know is that if you want to become great, you got to work. But when we build in this fear of failure, people start avoiding things. They don't want to work on certain things because it hurts, because they don't want to show they're not as good. And we definitely don't want to do that to kids as parents. So listen, ask questions, help them put things in perspective when they're struggling. Like, hey, this is a long-term journey. You're going to play another 300 matches before your junior career is over. This is just a blip on the screen. When you're 18, you're not even going to remember this match. We try I like to, what you said yeah. about, you know, the three skills to build resilience, which is, you know, support, you know, have those skills, you know, that you need and have adversity. And, and I do think that we see a lot of kids withdrawing from events when they know that they're going to play against players who are better than they are. And it's like, well, I'm going to lose. Why bother? But what you said was, was that you're going to, it's information that you're going to gather. And I think a lot of the coaches tend to push, push the kids to play up, play higher because you're going to learn from that experience. Um, and I think that, you know, I played on a lot of teams that were like, oh, and whatever, you just enter another number of how many games we played. It was oh and eight or oh and 10. Um, and, but I continued to play and over time, something magical happened and I got better. And I don't think I got better because we were winning. I got better because we were losing and I was playing against people who were so much better than me. And I was watching what they were doing. And I was like, ah. I see how they're playing. I see the decisions that they're making. I want to learn to do that. You know, I want to learn these skills that I don't have. And, you know, I think those, the idea of resilience is something that um, we don't talk about enough. And then removing the fear and shame of failure that we've all failed. You know, most of what we learned is because we did something one way and it went badly. And then we took that back and said, well, geez, I screwed that up. Why? Why did that go badly the next time? And um, that's something that I think even as as managers and just anyone who's coaching anyone can kind of take away of, you know, allow for the failure to happen and normalize it and then yeah. learn from it. I think normalizing is such a good word. And, and, and certainly uh, 
if you leave young kids to their own devices, they're going to try things and they're going to fail and they're not going to worry about it. Right. They're not looking around to see who's watching or they're just going to, you know, they pick up a skateboard and they try to figure it out and they, they're just in the process of learning. They don't care that they're making mistakes. They don't care that they throw the ball over your head or they hit the ball on the ground. It's when this social evaluation, they start to learn that it's bad. And that, now that's a normal process. It's going to happen as they are around peers and they, they start comparing themselves as they become 9, 10, 11, 12. It's, it's a normal part of the process. We just don't want to pile on as parents. We want to make that process you know, go easier on them, not from the standpoint of making things easy in terms of their experiences of avoiding failure or loss, but in terms of how they deal with it emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. That, hey, this is normal. Like, you know, there's going to be kids that are better than you right now. That's okay. That doesn't mean they're going to be better than you in five years. It changes over time and, and vice versa. That if you are better than someone, you're going to have to keep working um, because you want to become the best version of yourself. And if you don't continue to improve yourself and learn, then people will pass you. And that's, that's a normal part of the process. So these are the lessons that young kids have to learn because they don't understand them. They have no clue, you know, they haven't lived life like we have. So, you know, but building in these ideas that it's very normal to fail and make mistakes and lose and, I'll just learn from it. One one of my favorite parts of the teaching coaching philosophy at the USDA player development um, is when we we go play a match and after the match, they go and they go hit for five or 10 minutes. Now, some coaches are like, what, what are they doing? Like, we don't always do it because if you play three hours in the heat, you know, like the the kids were playing last week, clay court championships, you're not going to do that. But what we're saying is that, this is all about learning in the process. Whether you won or you lost, we come back out, we work on a few things that you want to work on, we talk about the match, then we're done. Then we move on and we start preparing for the next day. And it just has a way of really making the players understand that, you know what, this is just a process. It's just one match. You're going to be okay. Um, and, and, and I've heard that Roger Federer said, I didn't hear this come out of his lips, but uh, someone said that he said this, that if you really want to win, you have to accept that you're going to lose. Because mm-hmm. that frees you up, right? It does, because you, a lot of the meaning we assign is up here, right? Is, mm-hmm. you know, how important this thing is happens here, right? It happens yes. right here is me winning this match whether I see that as so important that it's everything to me that I win versus I'm going to go in here, I'm going to do the best that I can. And that's what's important to me, or I'm going to collect a lot of information here. I mean, it's all psychological, how you view everything from a meeting to a tennis match to whatever, what, how do I view this? And what is the outcome that I, what are my expectations? And I think that there's a reason why Roger is successful. And there's a reason why, you know, when we, we watched Shapovalov play mm-hmm. in Wimbledon, one of the things they kept saying over and over again is how wonderful it was to see him go for it. Like he was so aggressive and you know, he made mistakes and he had sort of like this fearless nature about him of just going for things. And it was wonderful to hear that commentary happen. 
of the way that he played with kind of this sense of fearlessness. And I was happy to kind of hear that as to say, yeah, he lost that match, but look at, look at all the information he gathered from it and what he learned. And, and I think the outcome was like, he's there. He's so there. And that information is going to help go to the, the next level. And that to me was probably the, a prime example of why playing in on that stage, you know, and losing uh, will probably help him tremendously. And, and all of our players having those close matches where it comes down to one point and it's a heartbreaker. Like you learn a lot from the heartbreakers. Like, you sure do. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things is that, you know, when you're emotional, memories get imprinted stronger, deeper and deeper into the brain. So if you think about emotional experiences, you remember them for a much longer time than mundane, ordinary experiences. So I can't tell you, I know I brushed my teeth Monday of last week, but I couldn't tell you what time it was or what I was thinking or how well I brushed my teeth. I just know I did it, right? But I for sure can tell you about other things, you know, situations where, uh, you know, a conversation, a session went really well with the player or watching a match and the player demonstrates something we've been working on. I can for sure remember that. And that, that's the thing is that these experiences become so emotional that they, they get imprinted strongly in our minds, right? So they're much easier to remember and learn from, you know, and, and that's the thing that the losing hurts. We just did a podcast on our Compete Like a Champion podcast. I do Coach Johnny Parks at IMG. And we talked about how why losing should be painful. And if you really care, you know, and this is a high-performance podcast, so... But if you really care about what you're doing, losing is going to hurt, and that's okay. But you want to channel that into learning because those lessons are there, and those memories are strong. And so a lot of what we try to do, Laura, is when... Take, for example, a player loses to a top-ranked player. You know, I, I end up working with a lot of players, you know, ranked between, you know, the, the high 60s, 70s to 200, 300, right, in player development. And let's say they get an opportunity like in Indian Wells or Miami or someplace, Delray, or they end up playing, you know, a top 50, top 20 player. It's a great experience. They, players love to have that opportunity. And when they have it, uh, and they, if they lose, often there's this conversation about, okay, yeah, you lost the match, but do you see a path to victory and what it would take? Because one of the most powerful things is hope, right? Like if yeah. I have hope, and that hope comes from being able to see a future where I could win that match if I did these things. Now, they may not be capable of doing these things right now. Maybe there's a lot of practice that has to happen, a lot of training. You know, maybe it's in the gym, getting stronger, getting faster, getting more agile. Maybe it's uh, on a tennis court. Maybe it's mental. Or maybe it's mental in terms of believing in themselves more. Uh, so then we'll do a whole series of visualizations and imagery exercises where they imagine incorporating their strengths and their game plan against top players. We'll actually have them scout top players and then create an imagery script and talk about how that match would go if they were going to beat them. So there's things that um, can be done that you want to really, you want to create hope yeah. in your player. When, they, when they're losing, you want to have hope that, hey, 
this losing is not stable. It's going to change, but it's going to change because of the things you take control over. Your effort, your intentions, how you make yourself better, and you got to focus on the work you need to do. You can't focus on the refs, the officials. You can't focus on other. Th- All you can do is control what you can control, and bring your focus to that. And if you do that, and you make yourself better, things will get better. One of the things that everybody has to go through, unless maybe you're like Nadal or Serena, uh, is when you move up a level, and we all know this, we just don't talk about it enough. When you move up, oftentimes you're going to lose more. Mm. It's just a way of things, right? Right. You're just going to lose more quite often, not always. Now, some juniors can go through and they don't lose more until they become 16 and they're playing 18s. Or, but that's part of the process, so you have to mentally prepare for I'm probably going to lose more matches, but I'm going to become a better player because of who I'm playing with. So instead of continuing to win easy at this level, I'm going to go ahead and take on some losses so that I can become the player I want to be. And that's that long-term perspective. So again, if, if failure is a four-letter word, if it's an awful thing, then you're not going to make that decision. You're going to try to protect your self-esteem, your ego, and say, look, I'm just going to keep winning. You know, and, and that's where I'm at. I'm, I I'm feel comfortable. Guess what? Comfortable is the enemy of great. We've talked about that many times on our podcast. Oh, true. That when you're comfortable, you're going to get stuck. Mm-hmm. You got to get outside that. And that means you're going to fail some, you're going to lose some. You can make that really simple as, you know, I remember I'm jumping sports now, but when I'm coaching hockey and the kids are learning how to skate on their edges, uh-huh. Like, look, kids, if, if someone's not blowing a tire and just flying out down the ice and sliding for like 20 feet, we're not going hard enough. <laughs> like someone's got to blow a tire here. Or we're not going, we're not really right. pushing the edge. And, and I think in tennis, there's too much of talk about not making mistakes, um, not, you know, making errors because, you know, obviously unforced errors are a big predictor in who's going to win. but if, if you're so focused on not making mistakes, what you lose is you don't really go for it. And, and then you have a player when they're older that, and we have a number of them who just can't, they have a, I don't want to say can't because it's a strong word. They have a very hard time of getting over that mentality of not making mistakes. So then they play very passive. They, they play not to lose. And that's, it's a hard thing to overcome when you're 20, 22, 24. So I want to ask you one more question on this topic, and then I have one last question for you. So this particular topic of failure and loss, when is it okay for a player to quit? And how do parents handle that conversation? Ooh, that, that is a tough question. I've been asked this one before. I try to, you know, I try to be understanding because people have different varying opinions on this topic from should never quit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, you know what, if it doesn't make you happy, you shouldn't do it, right? And everything in between. So it's a very kind of personal thing. You know, the family's values, what you believe. Uh, but I think you also need to look at some other considerations. That the age of the player, the stage, how big are the goals, how important is it? Uh, you know, but there are certain things like, for example, at least I will say personally, 
And I know a lot of other um, players that I've coached as well as coaches that I've coached with and parents as well agree with this, that we want to see through our commitments. So if we commit to something, we're going to see it through. You made a decision to be on this team, made a decision to do this. We're going to see it through. Mm -hmm. The issue is sometimes that we're like, well, you made a commitment to tennis. So seeing it through means you stop when you're 18, right? Well, maybe they're 13 where we know a lot of kids change their interests. Right. And they don't want to do this anymore. And it's, it's becoming worse and worse that the consequences are far outweighing the benefits of staying in tennis. You know, again, like we said earlier, tennis, we want tennis to be a vehicle and a force of positive change in many ways in a young person. And if it's just like bone grinding on bone, as we talk about, and you go out there, then what's it for? Like, and you get one, one shot as far as I know at this. So what makes you happy? And so I, I think, again, you know, you have to look at a case by case. I do think that players should stick to their commitments. Uh, so if a player says, look, uh, I'm, I want to be done with tennis. All right. But you, you know, you told your coach you would do this season. So can we finish that? And what can we do to make this better? Um, because, you know, the other thing we see is that kids change their minds often. And maybe they just need a little space. Maybe they need to, maybe they need to take a break. Uh, and when they come back, they might see it differently. But that will also tell you, Lori, like if you take a break and they come back and the feelings don't change and maybe they really, truly don't want to do this anymore. So uh, parents, though, you got to remember, it's not your sport. It's not you on the court. It's not you making the decision. I know you're responsible for it, but don't make it about you. Right. You Again, there are certain family values. I get it. People are going to land in different places on this. But remember, it's not about you. It's about your kids' happiness and, and what they want. Uh, so then you support them to find other interests. But I'm a believer in giving it another try unless it's really, really bad and really falling through on your commitments. Because I think I do. the younger you go, kids change their minds a lot. Yeah. Uh, the older they get, though, they typically know a lot more what they want. Not always. We know college students change their majors a lot. Uh, but... They have a better idea and, you know, giving them some space, maybe taking a break will help you identify what truly is going on. And I think that's really most important. What's really going on? Yeah. Because maybe the unhappiness is not with the sport, maybe with the coach. Right. Maybe it's with the, the level of involvement. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't feel like they're getting better. Um, you got to really dig onto the surface and understand. Or maybe so. they feel like they're disappointing you as a parent. Could be. Yeah. And that happens a lot. And, and look, I mean, you could be the, there's no perfect parent, by the way, but you could be as close to the perfect parent as possible. And your kid can still feel pressure to make you happy and not let you down. It's just a way of things. So uh, you got to be aware of that. Yeah. That maybe, maybe there's something there where they, they don't want to let you down. And look, we, some kids are, are people pleasers, right? They want to make people happy. Those kids are, on, on the average, are more likely to want to, you know, really make you happy as a parent. And, you know, they're going to do things just because they think you want them to do them. And, and so I think that's where you have to have that very transparent, open, and clear communication that this is not about me. This is your sport. 
You tell me what you want. Now, and, and that's where having these conversations beforehand really help, Laura, where if you're going into a season, I know tennis is like a 12-month thing, but finding the breaks and being like, look, okay, we're about to go into another stretch. Here's what it looks like. Is this what you want? Um, you know, if you're starting to see the kid waver a little bit in their interest or motivation or focus. So, um, but don't be surprised, you know, that kids might mention that they want to quit tennis because, again, in our interviews with professional tennis players back in the early 2000s, many of them said that they considered quitting at some point in time. And these were people who made professional tennis. So. Well, look at Ash Barty. Perfect mm-hmm. example there. I mean, she did quit. She, she did so, right? And played cricket and wanted to come back. And she did. And here she is, the champion. What an unbelievable athlete and, and just character that, that Ash Barty has. Uh, I will say to the parents listening, <laughs> that's... That's a very unique story, <laughs> but, uh, but it goes to show the value of sometimes you need a break to really appreciate what it is that you, you love about the game. And we talk about recovery all the time in player development uh, and recovery should be daily, uh, taking a break from tennis. So, you know, uh, I know many of the, again, the interviews we did, the players talked about their parents would not talk about tennis at the dinner table. They would not make tennis the topic of conversation all night long they take a break do something else yeah and I, and I think that's where you know parents one of the things they can really do is we're talking about diversifying our identity not our portfolio right our identity and that is having different things in our lives that have meaning to us that is so important laura because that buffers us from you know this situation where if tennis is the only thing i see myself as that's my identity and it's not going well guess what happens i'm not going well i feel bad about myself my self-esteem is lowered my confidence is lowered so but if i'm able to look at it and say okay tennis is not going well but i'm doing well as a student and that's important to me and you know i'm really you know getting better at learning to speak other languages or play an instrument that's important to me they have these other things that they value and they enjoy, uh, then that helps to buffer them and helps them stay confident and feeling good about themselves, even though maybe one part of their life isn't going so well. So that, that will certainly help um, with those things. But, you know, it's a fast and furious world. So a lot of people are in a rush to specialize and, and that's a whole nother conversation. But I, I would say part of this whole process is developing well-rounded kids and having that diverse identity where they can feel good about themselves in different roles and different parts of their lives. So I'm going to ask you one more question. We're almost out of time today and um, I'm going to put a little pressure on you've given so much great advice and guidance and thoughts today, but if you could offer just one piece of advice to the tennis parents who are listening to this podcast, just one piece that they could take away and think about and do, what would it be? One piece of advice. Wow. Okay. Now you really, if you had said 10, that would be (laughs) easier. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I could just ramble on again. Well, I, I think that where I usually come back to when it comes to parents is just being an unconditional source of love and support for your children. 
you know, it's very easy for tennis to become a means to an end, meaning that, you know, the goal becomes bigger than the well-being of the child, that we're going to make decisions that are risky for the child to reach the goal. Right. And, and that's, that's where it gets real concerning. Yeah. You always want to let your child know that no matter what, I'm here for you. I got your back. Now, I might tell you things you don't want to hear, but I do it because I love you and I want you to, I want you to become a healthy, well-rounded person. That unconditional love and support also is in your actions, though. So when they do struggle and they lose, it's not like, all right, pack it up. We're going home. Everybody's in a bad mood. And you know, we're going to go out to dinner, but now we're not. We're going to go see our grandparents. Now we're not. We changed the schedule because you lost. We're going home and everybody's going to sit in the house quiet. Yeah. It's kind of like after you know we lost in football. No one can talk on the bus. <laughs> You're like, gosh, am I going to sit here and think about all the mistakes I made? All right. Go sit in the corner and think about how bad that was. Yeah. It was, uh, I never enjoyed that. But, uh, you know, so I think the more that we can understand that our stability and our unconditional love and support creates that strong bedrock, that foundation for how that young person feels about themselves and in their relationship with the parent. Because at the end of the day, you, you want, to come out of this tennis journey with a stronger relationship with your child, not a weaker one. Um, and I've seen it happen so many times. It makes me sad. Yeah. That I see, and it's not just tennis, it's every sport and music and theater and whatever it may be. But when, when we go through this journey together and the child says, you know what? I don't really want anything to do with you. That's, that's heartbreaking because you know, in the vast majority of cases, the 99.9% of cases, the parents just wanted the best for their child. It's just the way they did it or the way they were thinking about it. So that's the piece of advice, Laura. Unconditional love and support. Unconditional love no matter and what. support. So we're going to take that one to close out this podcast of unconditional love and support. Um, there's lots of good nuggets in here. And I thank you so much. Larry, for spending all this time with me today. Um, I'm sure I could have asked you 20 more questions. <laughs> and um, I know you've come and you've talked to our staff before and, you know, you're just a gem and we really appreciate having you at the USTA and, and what you do is extremely valuable. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, anytime. And I really enjoy talking with you and, and talking to the staff and it's so much fun, you know, to, to talk with the parents because I know that they're seeking guidance and seeking information. And, and hopefully I provide something today that will help people. So you provided a wonderful array of information, which by the way, will be available at USTAflorida.com on our new parent zone page. And we'll also link to a number of the resources that Dr. Lauer provided earlier in the podcast um, so that you can access them uh, on USTAflorida.com slash here to serve. So just a reminder for everyone who's listening to the audio only version of this podcast, that you can find the full video version on USTA Florida's Facebook page and also on our website. And please also check USTAflorida.com slash here to serve for upcoming podcast dates and topics. We have a lot more planned for the rest of this summer. And uh, thanks for tuning in and have a great rest of your day.